This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 2 He doesn't know her. Woodridge, the county seat of Woods County, was a flourishing town of some 3,000 souls, situated not only on a railroad, but on the equally prized hard surface turnpike. It was the cultural center of one of the richest farming districts in the state. Four churches reared their spires within a stone's throw of the square, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, and Catholic, and a small society of Quakers met in the old fellow's hall over the farmer's and merchant's bank. But the institution which gave the little town its prestige was the academy. Housed in a one-room framed building, the faculty consisting of one professor, there was nothing about the Woodridge Academy outwardly to justify the pride it evoked in the breasts of the citizenry. But whereas a pupil in the district school could go no further than McGoffey's Reader and Milne's Complete Arithmetic, from the academy he could enter college with full credits. The teacher of the academy was, of necessity, a man of many talents. The present incumbent, John Barclay by name, was such a man. He taught in winter and farmed in summer, and rumor had it that he could have been a professional musician, had he desired. Certain it was he had given up the violin, as some men give up liquor. Upon joining the church and subscribed outwardly at least to the local opinion that the instrument was a tool of the devil, he refrained from playing it openly, but many a loiterer passing the academy late at night could testify that the schoolmaster indulged his vice in secret. Those same loiterers, when they lingered to listen, sometimes encountered the big blacksmith, Doc Baird, heading in that direction, and sometimes when the station hack pulled up, they would see dapper Lucius Guff, who worked on a tear-hout paper, leap out and swing jauntily through the gate, and sometimes they would find tall, handsome Richard Tomlinson tying his black horse to the hitching rail. When this happened, they would know that the four greatest friends in the county had gathered to spend an evening together. There was much talk about the oddly assorted friendship of these four. It was rumored that all sorts of unorthodox subjects were discussed among them. Mesmerism, some queer new cult called telepathy, 
and most devilish of all, spiritualism. It was claimed on good authority, lawyer Otis Hoos, no less, that Doc Baird and Lucius Goff indulged in table tipping. But then Otis Hoos was known to have no love for the Tomlinsons and was ready to cast suspicion on anything with which Richard was connected. But there were other people to testify that Doc Baird possessed magnetic power of some kind. He had been known to cure headaches, pains in legs and backs, and various nervous ailments by the simple laying on of hands. Jed Weatherall, an epileptic, asserted that when he felt a fit coming on, Doc Baird could put it back, if he could get to him in time. Old Dr. Caxton, a bona fide physician known far and wide as Rock Gut Caxton, snorted derisively at such gullibility and denounced the blacksmith as a quack. But as the smith accepted no fees and solicited no patience, he was kept busy six days a week at his trade. He could hardly be accused of charlatanism. Yet there was some point to the skeptic's demands that if Doc Baird possessed the skill with which he was credited, why had he never been able to cure Richard Tomlinson's wife? Surely if he had any power at all, he would have used it for his friend. One evening, about a week after Richard Tomlinson's trip to the city, John Barkley sat before the hard coal burner in his schoolroom and waited for his friends to gather. He thought as he cuddled his violin how good was male companionship. Not that he didn't love his wife and family of daughters, but how satisfying was the good hearty man talk that presently would fly back and forth across this glowing stove. What would they be arguing about tonight? Lucius would have the latest news. It was he who usually set the evening's discussions. Last time, he had been full of this green backer talk. It's the only thing that will prevent a panic. There's no currency in the country. How long has it been since you've seen a silver piece, John Barkley? Or you, Doc, how are you paid these days? In produce, I'll be bound. This whole community's living by a system of barter. Isn't that a fact, Richard? They had had a rousing discussion that night over the greenbackers. What Lucius would have on the griddle tonight, there was no telling. But you could count on its being fresh and full of interest. Lucius was the spice of the quartet, just as Doc was the leaven, and Barkley himself the flavor. It was Richard who was the substance. If his wife does die, I hope he never marries again. After all he's been through, he deserves a rest. A heavy step on the wooden porch made him lay aside his fiddle. That would be Doc Baird, usually first to arrive. He was unmarried and had no woman folk to conjole into good humor before leaving the house. He lived in a two-room cottage back of his shop and did for himself. Many a harassed family man envied the big blacksmith. He came in now with step surprisingly light for so huge a frame. 
and said as he took the schoolmaster's stoutest chair, Richard won't be in tonight. His wife's worse. John Barclay nodded as though this was to be expected following Richard's trip to the city. Been out there, Doc? No, Richard was in town today. The black horse cast a shoe. He asked me to tell you. He didn't like to call you out of school. The schoolmaster rose and got a jar of tobacco from a cupboard, where also reposed a box of chalk and a couple of blackboard erasers. He set the tobacco jar in the center of a small table, and both men filled their pipes. She's headed for another spell, said Barkley dryly. Doc nodded. I look for it to break tonight. Do you suppose you could do anything for it, Doc? I don't know. I've never had a chance to try. Richard won't let you? She won't let me. Goes in her room and slams the door when Richard takes me out there. You needn't take it personally. Shorter's Dr. Caxton out of the house, too. It's nothing to me. It just embarrasses Richard. Yes, it would. The schoolmaster sighed. Then, to his own surprise, he heard himself saying for the second time, and aloud, If she ever does die, I hope Richard has a sense enough not to marry again. The blacksmith shook his head. Not a chance. He doesn't need a wife, persisted Barkley. His mother runs the house, and she's certainly raising his children. A man needs a woman, said Doc solemnly. You're a great one to talk. I don't mean me, or you, or even our friend Lucius. I mean Richard. He's only 25. If Abigail dies, he'll marry in six months. Mark my words. I don't believe it. He's had enough. I can tell. Besides, there'd be the same thing to go through again. You mean the little girl? John Barkley nodded. The blacksmith cleared his throat. I still say Richard will never stay single. The women won't let him. Man alive, he'll be the best catch this side of Indianapolis. If he's ever a widower, said the schoolmaster dryly. They had both been talking as though Abigail Tomlinson's death were an assured fact. The train was late that evening as usual. Due at 6.15, it was after 7 when the brisk tattoo of a light walking stick announced Lucius Goff. Lucius had become quite a dandy since going to work on the Terre Haute paper and he always carried a Malacca cane. As he came in now, his cloak draped over his shoulders, his hat rackishly tilted, he gave the impression of a devil-made-care fellow who didn't give a damn what people thought, which was exactly the impression he intended to give. He was pricking with excitement for some reason. He looked about the room, his nostrils quivering like an expectant whippet's and demanded. Where's Richard? He's not coming, said John Barkley. His wife's sick. Then, thinking to himself, Lucius has news. Take off your coat and sit down. We're here, if Richard's not. But Lucius stepped to the window and peered up the quiet little street. It was dark, except where streetlights glimmered, and the square was practically deserted. There was no light visible in any window except the drugstore, before which the station hack had halted. Tom Stickney, the druggist, stood in his door as if watching to see whether the passenger alighting from the hack was coming in. The passenger was. Lucius, from the window of the academy, could see straight into the lighted drugstore. He stood motionless, 
watching. Doc Baird and the schoolmaster exchanged glances. Then, John Barkley stepped behind Lucius and looked over his shoulder. Through the lighted drugstore window could be seen the trim silhouette of a modish young woman. She was talking to Tom Stickney. Barkley said, <laughs> Doc, who, without moving, was looking over the heads of the other two men and said, Who is she? Lucius spoke without turning his head. I don't know. She was on the train as I came out, from Terre Haute. We rode up from the station together. I tried to speak to her, but I got the icy stare. He grinned. Then, after putting me in my place, she calmly asked the hack driver how she could get in touch with Richard Tomlinson. The consternation of his listeners was like applause to the drama-loving reporter. Tomlinson? A woman from Terre Haute asking for Richard? Said Doc Baird. I don't believe it said Barkley flatly. Then, to appease the black flash of Lucius's eyes, You misunderstood, surely. Richard knows no one in Terre Haute. No women, I mean. How do you know? retorted Lucius. He went up there about a week ago, didn't he? On business. Lucius laughed, not in malice, but in sheer appreciation of his news. I'll tell you what his business was. He went to see Macbeth. I know because I covered the play and I saw Richard in the first row of the balcony. Furthermore, he wasn't alone. He was in the company of a young lady. And, if I'm not mistaken, that same young lady is talking to Tom Stickney at this moment. Three pairs of eyes focused on the drugstore window. No one spoke for seconds. Something was happening that boded no good for their friend. Then the schoolmaster said, this thing can be explained. Richard Tomlinson is a good man. Too damned good, snapped Lucius. Ye gods, after all he's put up with, he's certainly entitled to... Doc Baird spoke. She mustn't be allowed to go out there. Abigail's in a bad way. John Barkley sucked in a swift breath. Surely she wouldn't try. Stickney seems to be giving her some sort of directions. See, he's pointing her down the street. Lucius muttered excitedly. By Jove, she's coming this way. They watched the three of them, as the trim figure stepped off the porch of the drugstore, lifted her skirts daintily, and crossed the street. They held their concerted breaths as she came briskly down the boardwalk to the academy, and then, as they saw her, set down a small traveling bag to unlatch the gate. They backed away from the window, like three bewildered hounds who had caught a cross scent and didn't know what to do with it. Doc whispered, She's coming here. And looked at Lucius, who, for reasons of his own, became suddenly self-effacing, giving the nod to the schoolmaster. He retired behind the stove while Barkley went to the door. A pleasing feminine voice said, Good evening, is Mr. Richard Tomlinson here? The three men had never seen anyone quite like the young person who stepped across the threshold in response to the schoolmaster's invitation. Poised and self-assured, smartly, though somewhat shabbily attired, not a man among them, not even the urban reporter could have told offhand whether or not she was a lady. She looked about the square, low-ceilinged room with its double row of unvarnished desks. She had never been in such a schoolroom before. 
If its crudity dismayed her, she gave no sign. She merely repeated the object of her visit. I was told that I might find Mr. Tomlinson here. She addressed herself to the schoolmaster, but her glance included the blacksmith and the individual behind the stove. She recognized Lucius as the man who had tried to talk to her in the hack. It amused her to find him among those present and absurdly trying to conceal the fact. Mr. Tomlinson isn't here this evening, said John Barclay. The druggist had evidently explained to the stranger the custom of the four friends to congregate. I'm afraid not. His wife is ill. But she's always ill, isn't she? I mean, she's an invalid. This was indeed ominous. It could have not been Tom Stickney, surely, who had discussed Abigail Tomlinson's health with this stranger. The schoolmaster and the blacksmith exchanged glances. Lucius, in his corner, grew uncomfortably warm and wished himself elsewhere as the young woman set her bag on one of the desks and moved over to the stove. She ignored him as though he were invisible, stretching her gloved hand to the rosy, Isinglass windows in perfect composure. Suddenly, she inquired how far it was to Timberley. John Barclay gasped. Timberley? That's Mr. Tomlinson's home, isn't it? Yes, but... He told me anyone in Woodridge would direct me to his place. You mean... The schoolmaster eyed her keenly. Richard Tomlinson invited you to his house. Invited is scarcely the word for a business appointment. Is it? Suddenly, the schoolmaster saw a light, but before he could speak, the young lady was explaining. I met Mr. Tomlinson in Terre Haute, quite by accident, and he mentioned that the Timberley School was without a teacher. He said if I was interested in applying to come to see him. I told him I had never taught in rural school and was not sure it would appeal to me. But I had just completed the half-term at Oaklawn Seminary and wasn't altogether happy in my associations there. So last week I handed in my resignation and decided to accept Mr. Tomlinson's offer. Thus, with only a slight variation of the truth, Judith expunged her humiliation at being fired from Oakland and put Richard Tomlinson on record as having offered her employment. She sat down in the chair, which was now pushed forward for her, and drew a deep breath of satisfaction. The reactions of the three men were characteristic. Doc Baird and the schoolmaster accepted the glib explanation with relief. Lucius Goff with suspicion. That the young woman was telling only part of the truth, he was convinced. Richard had doubtless met her in Terre Haute, but why had he offered her the school? She was not the type of person needed at Timberley. Either Richard had been drunk, which was unlikely, or he had acted under pressure. Remembering his friend's domestic situation, Lucius's mind clutched at the darkest and most interesting possibility. No such thought troubled the schoolmaster. Okay, well, well, so you're a teacher. Richard never told us that he engaged anyone for the Timberley School. As a matter of fact, the, the business is not solely in his hands. The district votes at a school meeting, but they usually take whoever the trustees recommend. So you can probably settle something when you talk to Mr. Tomlinson tomorrow. Tomorrow? I thought I might drive out there this evening. It's early, you know, not yet eight o'clock. 
At the coolness of this proposal, there was another uneasy exchange of glances. I wouldn't advise going out there tonight, said Doc Baird flatly. Not with Richard's wife the way she is. John Barkley explained, I'm afraid you'd find it an unfortunate time to see Mr. Tomlinson. On your own account, I mean. Better wait till morning. One of Moss Hunt Henderson's boys, he has a livery stable, will drive you out. But where am I to spend the night? I couldn't go alone to a hotel. The town's sole hostelry on the north side of the square was distinctly no place for a lady. It had a bar. Our sardonic voice replied, Were you thinking of spending the night at Timberley? And Lucius Goff stepped dramatically from behind the stove. The young woman was not one whit disconcerted. Certainly I expected to stay at Timberley. I'm to board there if I take the school. This was pure bluff and fabrication, but Judith knew that no one present was in a position to call her hand. So she acknowledged with cool bravado the reporter's smile and bow. My apologies. Permit me to introduce myself. Lucius Goff of the Terre Haute Express. I had the pleasure of seeing you on the train, Miss... It was the moment he had been waiting for. Judith was forced to give her name. General introductions followed, Lucius taking charge with a savoir-faire designed to show his less sophisticated friends how a man of the world handled these situations. Now, if I may make a suggestion, Miss Amory, I'm on my way out to my father's place, four miles west on the Corduroy Road. I keep a rig at Henderson's. If you'll wait here a few minutes, I'll be only too pleased to take you out home with me. I'm sure my sister can make you feel comfortable. Then, tomorrow I'll drive you over to Timberley, and you can settle your <clears throat> business with Mr. Tomlinson. Nothing could have exceeded the courtesy with which the invitation was extended, but that little cough before the word business made Judith turn with relief at the first halting word from the schoolmaster. There doesn't seem to be much point in going four miles the other side of the town when Timberley's east of here. Our house isn't large, we've no spare room, but if the young lady's not afraid of a folding bed, there's one in the parlor. The young lady was not at all afraid of folding beds. Before John Barclay could wipe his spectacles, wondering belatedly what his wife would say, his reckless gesture of hospitality was being accepted. Thank you so much, Professor Barkley, and you too, Mr. Goff. I'm sure you understand that it will be more convenient for everyone if I stay in Woodridge tonight. So, without further ado, John Barkley escorted the young woman to his house, which was only a block from the academy. His two friends watched from the window. Doc Baird said, Wonder what Ellie Barkley is going to say when that young lady walks in. Lucius Goff snapped his fingers, disposing of Allie Barkley. Wait till the lady walks into Tomlinson's. That's when all hell will break loose. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss, and I'm the narrator for this mystery book. 
Project EF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at ValerieMoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hi, my name is Kylie, and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup, streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com, and on my Instagram, at kmorgan, with two A's. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Wrestle Life Radio. But wait, this isn't Wrestle Life Radio, but this is Matt Sin from Wrestle Life Radio. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, and I play the role of Doc Baird. You can find me at WrestleLifeMatt on Instagram and Twitter, but please follow my show at WrestleLife Radio on Facebook and Instagram and WrestleLifePod on Twitter. You can listen to us anywhere you get your shows, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Radio Public, and of course, Anchor. I look forward to interacting with all of you very soon. Hello, my name is David Boisvert. I'm a musician who currently resides in the Nashville, Tennessee area. I'm a saxophonist, keyboardist, and vocalist for three bands that play in and around Nashville, as well as the Southeast U.S., and have session recorded for a variety of local artists. It was my pleasure to record the songs Rock of Ages and Praise God From Whom All Blessings Flow on piano. I performed the character Lucius Goff, as well as Miscellaneous Man, in the final episode. I'm pleased to say that Valerie is my cousin, and I'm so proud of her for producing Valerie's Variety podcast, as well as her audiobooks. I'm grateful to be a part of this project, and I hope you have enjoyed listening as much as I have. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath, called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. And a certain delicate impudence of manner. Small boned and fragile, she was nonetheless intrepid. I've got to see Richard, she said coolly. Claw-like fingers gripped his wrist and stayed the hand that was feeding her. Very well, I promise. Beads of perspiration stood on the man's forehead. The more innocent they appear, the more likely they are to set the school in uproar, without even being caught in mischief themselves. Credit note for Ode to Joy by Cooper Canal a no-copyright-free download music that I used to give patronage to John Barclay's love for his violin. This song almost brings me to tears every time I play it. I hope it has the same effect on you.
Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors, who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, R579915, and had consulted directories for her heirs and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but were unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.